So, good morning. As Barry said, this is the second in our Easter series, the characters of Easter. Last week, if you were here, you remember Barry talked about the priests and the scribes, and he showed us how even moral people, people who are supposed to be the religious and moral leaders of a country, can end up doing evil if they don't keep themselves close to God. Today, we're going to the opposite side of human nature as we look at the two men who suffered and died alongside Jesus. Before we start, though, we'll spend just a few minutes considering what happened to all three of the men that were on those crosses. And I would say before we start as well, if you've still got Luke 23 open, you might find it handy as we go through just to keep through, follow through the story. So the three men that were going to be crucified, their ordeals would have started with them being flogged. I mean, the Roman scourge was a vicious tool. It had multiple tails, like a, or strands, like a cat of nine tails. But at the end of each one, there was a lead ball, and there were bits of bone embedded in the throng so, so that they would uh, tear the skin and the flesh as the victim was flogged and leave his back a mass of uh, raw wounds. They were then forced to carry their crossbeams as they were paraded through the streets of the city with the charges against them being carried ahead of them. And those charges, as we saw in the case of Jesus, were then nailed to the cross above them so everybody knew what they were there for. Obviously, as they were carrying the crossbeam, the heavy wooden beam would rest on the lacerations on their shoulders. It would press the material of their clothing into the wounds. They would stick with the blood as it congealed. And then once they arrived at the place of execution, the condemned were stripped naked. And removing their clothing would have reopened the wounds on their backs and their shoulders. And then they were nailed to the crossbeams, probably through the wrists. The Greek word that's used, translated hands quite often in our Bible, actually means anywhere from the elbow downwards. So the nails would either go in between the bones of the forearm or potentially through the carpal tunnel. And as they did, the nails would have cut or nicked the median nerve and that would cause severe shooting burning pains up their arm. If any of you have ever suffered from RSI, what you felt was a very mild form of what the person being crucified would have experienced. The upright sections of the crosses would probably have been permanently fixed, and they'd have been in a prominent place near a major road or a crossroad so everybody could see what was going on. And the crossbeams with their victims on them would have been raised up and fastened to the uprights and then their feet would have been nailed. Now, interestingly, we have very little archaeological evidence of how crucifixion was conducted, or even if it was conducted. There's plenty of literature, but not physical. But in 1968, in Israel, and then in 2017 in the UK, bodies were found that had been crucified. And in both cases, they'd been nailed through the heel bone, so that their feet were fastened either side of the upright. And you can see the nails that were found in the, in the bodies there. Normally we don't get that because the nails were recovered and either used again or they were used to make amulets. But in these cases, the nails were stuck, so which is why we've, we've got this evidence. And then once crucified, the condemned men were left to die, watched over by a squad of soldiers to ensure that nobody tried to rescue them. Over the last 2,000 years, 
tradition and art have sanitized the realities of crucifixion. A crucified person wouldn't be stretched out and static the way these paintings show. Having their arms stuck out so far, all it had done was dislocate their shoulders, and that would have meant a quick death through suffocation because they couldn't pull themselves against them. Instead, they would be nailed in such a way that they could raise themselves up to breathe and take the weight off their wrists by, sink, um, by standing on their feet and then ease, easing the pain there, but only at the expense of more pain through the nails in their feet and as they moved against the rough wood. Over time, the effort of lifting themselves like that repeatedly and sinking back down again would have and the difficulty of breathing would gradually have reduced them to exhaustion. They would suffer from muscle cramps. They would suffer from increasing thirst, both through the shock they would be experiencing, and of course in Judea, from the dry environment. But eventually death might not come for days. The process was intended to be shameful, protracted, and agonizing. It was a message, it was a warning to those who witnessed it that this was how the Roman state would deal with slaves or non-citizens that rebelled or committed other major crimes. And it's slightly challenging to think that something like two-thirds to three-quarters of the population of the Roman Empire came in those categories. They were subject potentially to crucifixion. All three men crucified that first group Friday went through the same physical ordeal and suffering. And as part of that, speaking during their crucifixions would be difficult. They would need to pull themselves up so they could breathe out to speak. It would mean pulling against the nails, pushing with their feet, easing the pressure on their chests enough to get the words out. And if you look at the accounts in all the Gospels of them speaking, you get reported short, clipped sentences. And that's why they're like that, because that is a sign of reality. That is how they would have been forced to speak. Just keep that in mind, the effort and pain of speaking, as we look at Luke's narrative this morning. So who were these two men suffering alongside Jesus? Well, Luke describes them as criminals in Luke 20, uh, 23, 32, 33, and 49. The Greek, use, Greek, word, Greek word used is kagoros, a generic term for a lawbreaker or evildoer. Matthew and Mark use the term aestes, which can mean bandit or revolutionary. It wouldn't be unreasonable to think they may have been part of Barabbas' gang, captured at the same time that he was taken. But of course Barabbas was let go because the crowd asked for him rather than Jesus. They may well have been what, known, what is known as Sicarii, Dagomen, a group in Judea that was trying to incite rebellion against the Romans and were notorious for assassinating both Romans and Jews they believed were collaborating with small, easily concealed daggers. In modern terms, they would have been terrorists or freedom fighters, depending on your point of view. Whatever, your, whatever their crime, these would have been hard men. They would have been used to living in difficult conditions, on the run, hiding in the wilderness. And they would have been used to violence, robbery, and murder. By nine o'clock in the morning, Jesus and the two criminals were hanging from their cross. Mark 15, 25 gives us the actual time. 
with Jesus between the two others. By placing Jesus in that central position, Pilate was implying that he was the greatest criminal of the three. But whatever Pilate intended, which was probably just getting his own back on the Jewish rulers for forcing him into the position of crucifying Jesus, it was God, not Pilate, that was in control of events. And it did fulfill these verses that we read earlier in Isaiah 53. Give him a portion among the great. He will divide the poil with the strong because he poured out his life and was numbered with the transgressors. But that was only one of the many insults, that Pilate's insult was only one of many that was hurled at Jesus as he was dying. The spectators passing by insulted and mocked him. Mark 15, 29 to 30. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. We read the Jewish leaders sneered at him in Luke 23, 35. The leaders scoffed, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him in Luke 23, 36 to 37, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even the criminals crucified with him joined in, Matthew 27, 44. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Just think about it. At a time of extreme agony, when every word they uttered came at the con- as a cost of struggle and excruciating pain, these men were using their energy to insult Jesus. So how did Jesus respond? Well, while most men would scream at the pain of being nailed and curse and swear at those who were inflicting that pain on them, Jesus prayed for them. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. When he was insulted by nearly everyone around him, while they were gawking at his suffering, Jesus didn't respond to their insults. When he did speak, it was in concern for others. When Jesus saw his mother there, John 19, 26 and 27, and the disciple who he loved, he said, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. So that John looked after him, after her. He spoke to God near his death. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamach sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though I haven't included it here on the slides, he also said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he completed his work with a cry of completion from John 19.30. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At that point, Jesus knew he had done what he came into the world to do. He had taken on himself all the sin of the world and had paid the penalty, borne the complete wrath of God that our sin, your sin, my sin had earned. The cup that he spoke of in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had taken and drunk to the dregs. And knowing he'd finished it, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is paid in full. But somewhere during those long, pain-filled hours while the three men suffered on their crosses, 
something changed for one of the criminals. He started off mocking Jesus, along with his friends. But he switched from insulting Jesus to objecting what the other person was saying. Luke 23, 40. The other rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? What caused the change? He would undoubtedly have seen crucifixions before and seen how people reacted as they were crucified. But Jesus was different. Maybe it was just seeing how Jesus behaved and reacted to what was happening to him. How Jesus was different that spoke to him. It's possible that he had at some time seen or heard something of Jesus in the works he'd done. Maybe some snippet of Jesus' teaching came to his mind as he hung there. Maybe the realization hit him that very soon he was going to be standing before his maker and that his life gave him no hope of making it, getting into heaven. But none of these are enough to change a man on their own. After all, his friend on the other cross had the same experience. He was in the same situation. He had had the same exposure to Jesus through the journey to Gogotha and through the process of being crucified. Yet that man's thoughts were and remained on himself. Look at the way he taunted Jesus in Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals hanging there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He picked up on the taunts of the crowd and the Jewish leaders and threw them at Jesus. But what he really wanted was to be off that cross, to be freed from the agonies he was enduring, to be spared the death that was crouching at his door. Was he concerned about judgment? Probably not. Or if he was, it was only to seek to put it off for as long as possible by staying alive. It wasn't therefore circumstances that brought about this sudden change in one criminal's attitude and not the other. But we've all read a similar account of a sudden change in someone elsewhere in the Bible. In Acts 9, we see Saul, who, as it says, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Jerusalem so that if he could find any there who followed the way, that is Christians, whether men or women, he could take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Acts 9, 1 and 2. Yet in the same chapter, just a very short time later, Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Both the change in Saul, who of course became Paul the Apostle, and the dying criminal came from the same source. And for each of us who have come to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, for everyone throughout history that has ever trusted, and everyone who ever will trust Jesus, it comes from the same source. Look at what the criminal said in Luke 23, 41. We indeed have been condemned just, justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. He recognized his sin. 
he agreed with God that he had fallen far short of God's standards. He wasn't blaming anyone else. He wasn't blaming circumstances. He wasn't blaming his upbringing or the way his parents or lack of them. He's not minimizing what he's done. He's confessing he is guilty and worthy of death. He's seeing himself through God's eyes. But he also sees something else. He's been looking at Jesus, and he's seen something special about him. Luke 23, 41 goes on. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He had seen Jesus' different behavior through that day, but so had his friends. But somehow, his eyes were different. How did he know that Jesus had done nothing wrong, that Jesus had never sinned? We sometimes sing one of the modern versions of Amazing Grace. and I'm sure you all know the words to it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What enabled that wretch to be saved? It was Amazing Grace. What enabled the lost to be found? Obviously not a way Amazing grace, yeah? And what enabled the blind to see? Okay, amazing grace. I'll stop logging that dead horse. This man was touched by God's amazing grace. He was enabled to see his sin through God's eyes. He was enabled to see who Jesus was, who Jesus is. His spiritual blindness was healed. His dead, hard heart was made alive again, spiritually alive. God's grace isn't just what saves us from the penalty of, of our sin. It's that same grace from God that awakens us to see our sin, to recognize our need for a Savior. And it's God's grace that gives us the faith to believe and receive forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Note that this is, not, this is saying that it's not just the salvation that is by grace, but also the faith by which we accept God's gift of salvation. And just in case you still aren't convinced that God's gift of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, and of adoption into God's family is by grace and grace alone, there's another lesson that that dying man, the penitent thief, can teach us. So many people try to live a life that is acceptable to God. If you ask them why God should let them into the heaven, they'll say things like, I try to live a good life, I've never stolen or murdered, I don't sleep around, or even I go to church regularly. In fact, uh, many years ago on an evangelism course, we actually asked this question in the streets of Southampton, and someone's answer of why should he be let into heaven was, I was a Boy Scout. No. None of those, those ways of living meet God's standards of holiness. We're called to be perfect, to be holy like God is holy. And none of those reasons are valid reasons for God to accept anybody, even you or me. And to an extent, even Christians can fall into the trap if we're not careful. We may do some sort of service in the church. But do we see it as a response in gratitude for what God has done for us, 
or are we trying to seek his favor? We may witness, but are we being obedient to Jesus' command as faithful servants or trying to earn our way into heaven? So what is the lesson from this criminal that we all need to learn to treasure in our hearts and to live by day by day? Well, think about his situation. He was pinned on his cross like a butterfly on a collector's tray. What could he bring to Jesus? Nothing but his sin. What could he do for Jesus? Nothing. He could barely move. And he was never going to be able to move freely again. But what did he ask Jesus? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's asking to be remembered when Jesus comes in his kingdom. It's a simple phrase. But look at what it includes, what it implies. Jesus is being executed. But the criminal is looking at a life beyond death. He's recognizing Jesus as a king. And he's asking that Jesus help him in due course. So obviously he believes Jesus has the ability to help him. It brought to mind Joseph when he was in jail in Egypt in the Old Testament. He asked Pharaoh's cupbearer to remember him when the cupbearer was released from jail in Genesis 40, 14. He said to him, when all goes well with you, remember me, show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. But despite his promise, the cupbearer forgot Joseph and forgot him for some time after his release. That dying criminal is making a very similar request of Jesus. But he gets a very different answer. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. The criminal won't be remembered at some time in the future. He won't be remembered at the end of time when Jesus comes back, which is what he asked. He won't be remembered and some servant, some minion will be sent to provide aid. Jesus tells him, that hardened thug with blood on his hands, that he will not only be in paradise, but at the end of the day, he will be with Jesus. And this isn't a hope. It's not a promise like the cupbearer made to, to Joseph. It's a fact. It will happen. It's been decided on. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, truly, I tell you, or in some versions, truly, truly. And that's the critical lesson. We can't earn our way into heaven. There aren't hurdles we need, that we need to jump to be saved. The criminal wasn't baptized. He didn't say a special prayer. He didn't do a course. He couldn't do any good works. He just trusted Jesus and asked him for help. While I was preparing this, I found a statement online about the events, and the penitent criminal particularly, and I think it summarizes it rather well. It said, the Bible shows us that no person ever did less to be saved than that criminal on the cross. And it's true. What could he do? But the amazing thing is, the Bible also tells us no person ever did more to be saved either. No matter how good we are, no matter what we've done, what we do after we've been saved, it's all down to God and God's grace. Grace was at work in more ways than one on that day. 
As Jesus sacrificed himself for all of us on that cross, Jesus' grace was at work. Jesus died for sin. He died for our sin. And only he could do that because he is the only person who has never sinned. But there was more grace at work that day than that. The repentant criminal died to sin through what Jesus was doing on the central cross. Now, we don't know what happened to the other criminal. The Bible just doesn't tell us. Did he realize and seize on his only opportunity to be saved in the last few hours of his life? Or did he carry on focusing on himself, doing things his way, ignoring Jesus, and so die in sin? We don't know. But that's not the important question. Every one of us here, everyone who is listening to this online, has to make the same choice. We're basically queuing up behind those two outer crosses, one on Jesus' right, one on his left. Will you revile him? Will you spurn his offer of forgiveness and eternal life? Or will you turn to him in faith and trust and accept his offer? There are no other options. No matter how much people would like there to be, that's it. It's binary. One or the other. The choice is forgiveness and eternal life by repenting of your sin, your rebellion against God, and trusting in Jesus as your Lord, or rejecting God's offer, rejecting the sacrifice that Jesus made, going your own way, and through that choice, earning yourself eternal punishment. For the criminals, the end of their life was very clear and very near. We don't know when our lives are going to end. But the urgency to respond to God's grace is just the same. Choose Jesus today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. God's word consistently teaches that the message of salvation cries today, not tomorrow. Hell is going to be full of people who intended to be saved from their sins tomorrow, but then never got around to it. Don't let one of them be you. Let's pray together.